This morning we're continuing our series, uh, and we'll be looking this morning at the topic of I am in a battle. I am in a battle. And what I want to try and unpack this morning is some things I've been personally thinking about for at least 15 years. The question I've often been asking is, what part is my part in this relationship, God? And what part is your part? What part do I play in seeing prophetic promises fulfilled? What part do I play in seeing personal freedom enjoyed? And what part is your part? I want to start with a context, a story, and many of you will have heard this before, but I want to say it because a lot of what I'm going to say can bring you freedom rapidly, much quicker than I experienced. The Apostle Paul says in the Bible that some of the things that he had experienced were that others could get freedom and revelation much quicker. So some of the things that maybe have taken me 15 years to understand, you can get this morning and you can be free much, much more rapidly. And for me, this is part of getting my payback, okay? So you'll understand as I tell my story, my payback for what I've wrestled with is for you to get freedom much quicker. That's how, for me, it gets redeemed. I think probably now, doctors would have said, Jamie, you, 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 you suffer from OCD, obsessive compulsion disorder. I remember being incredibly fear-ridden from, I think, 10 years old would be the first time I would have experienced the beginnings of crippling fear or tormenting fear. Um, fear of making mistakes, fear of getting things wrong, um, obsessive fear about uh, being the reason for an accident. I, I remember as a kid, 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, beginning to have a routine at night time of uh, checking the plugs to make sure they were all off, checking everything multiple times. Once wasn't enough, twice wasn't enough. It had to be 44 times. Um, because four was my favourite number. Thankfully, I didn't think 444. I didn't go that far, but 44 felt enough. Um, checking my alarm at night time 44 times. Um, just fear, um, foreboding about the future, te- uh, inability to connect really to anticipation and joy out of the fear that I could do something that could mess it up. Um, tormented by thoughts. For example, if I'd been walking and, and, and I'd moved a paving stone, um, I'd get into bed at night and suddenly think, what if an old lady tripped on that paving stone? I was the cause for her breaking her hip. I remember an 18-year-old getting out of bed and going to check that was okay. I'm talking tormenting, obsessive checking based on fear. And so... You want to know how to get freedom, don't you? (laughs) When you're going through that, when you can't anticipate, you can't enjoy, you can't look forward. And I think, so there's that, we'll park that there, that's a personal uh, journey which we'll unpack, where, where freedom comes from. And there was also the sense of, when God gives prophetic words, you know, 
when God gives a promise, when God gives um, something, um, what part is my part? What part is God's part? Is it when God gives a prophetic promise, is he just going to turn up and do it? Or is there something that I need to participate? Is it inevitable because he promised? Or is there something that I need to do? So I want us to see those two things with this, this personal freedom and also this uh, uh, outworking of prophetic promises that are much more to be a blessing to others. So I want to unpack some stuff from the, from the book of Joshua in chapter 1. Because I just believe in these verses that there are some keys to personal freedom, personal overcoming of things that can trouble you, and also how corporately we engage in prophetic promises. So for those of you who don't know what the context of Joshua, um, if you, if the, the, the Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, they were slaves, and God had promised them historically that he was going to take them to a land that would be their land, a land where they could plant, a land where they could sow, a land where they could cultivate, and it would be their home and their place. And then God through Moses, led Israel out of slavery in Egypt on this journey to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they were meant to get there really quickly. But when Moses sent 12 men into the land to check out this land that God had promised, 10 of them got totally gripped by anxiety and fear. They saw the cities like Jericho and they saw the giants and they were so terrified about the land they spread a bad report about the land, so the whole of Israel was so terrified about going in, God had to say to them, this generation will not inherit the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. Two of the spies, Joshua and a man called Caleb, had a very, very different perspective on the land. Caleb had said, surely we can do it. They are going to be like bread to us. He had a courageous outlook and a bold outlook. And so Caleb and Joshua were the only two of that generation or, or that generation of men who had been in Egypt who then got to go in the land. In the context of chapter 1 of Joshua, Moses has just died. He doesn't get to go in the land because actually really he'd, he'd um, sinned against God, he hadn't believed God in the way that God had said for him to believe. And now God is coming to Joshua and saying to Joshua, you are going to lead these people into the land that I promised. So this is a huge moment that's gone back generations, and now Joshua is going to be the one who's going to lead the people. And so it says in chapter 1 of Joshua, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. Then down to verse 5 it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
be strong and courageous for you shall um, so you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Then he says this, only be strong and very be courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Then he says in verse 8, which is the absolute crux of it, this book of the law, the Bible, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Sometimes we conclude that if God has given a promise, then we won't have to fight for it. We can conclude on a personal level, if God has said he will give us peace and joy and hope, then he will just give it to us and we won't have to fight for it. We can conclude on the prophetic, if God gives a promise to us, well, then it's a promise that he will have to fulfil and do all the work on. Or if he gives a corporate promise to a local church of outflow into the community, of percolating the presence of God, that it's a promise from him and that he will give it. And it's true that God says to Joshua, the land that I am giving you. It's a promise, it's a gift. But he also says, every place where you're footsteps you need to be strong and courageous I'm promising to be with you wherever you go you need to be strong you need to be courageous see I think we all love getting a prophetic word from God we all love it when God, as it were, reads our mail and tells us who we are and where we're going and what we're going to become and the things that we're going to do and the experiences that we're going to have and the dreams that we can dream with him. Don't we all love those moments? I, I would drive anywhere to be where there's a prophet. Yeah? You sit there and you want to hear God's heart, God's assessment, God's call. We love it. We love it each year when the Eastgate team is here and we hear prophetic words and we hear, hear who we're becoming. We love the promise. But are you like me and hate the process? So we love the promise, but we hate the process. We love to hear what he thinks about us that we can store it up, but then we don't like the process. The promise to Joshua and the promise to the people was not inevitable. The reason Joshua and Caleb are even in this moment is because they had a different way of viewing things. It says of Caleb, he had a different spirit. <laughs> he saw things differently. Joshua is leading the people into real conflict against real enemies where there is a real threat 
of real fear and real terror and the real temptation to run away and retreat. You've got to remember, these are real people who, who were walking by faith. And so God says, you're going to need to be strong and you're going to need to be courageous. To be a Christian is to be in the most beautiful love story there is. And it's a love story set in the context of a real war. This is a wartime romance we're in. We're in a wartime romance. And we're like Joshua and we face many circumstances and many obstacles and many things that we see that can war against us to steal our courage, to steal our hope, to steal our joy, to steal our resolve. There is an enemy who hates the Christian. There is an enemy who who literally hates you. He hates who you are. He, because he hates God. And he hates your association to being, a good, to being a son and daughter of a good, good father. We have an enemy who wants us to retreat in fear. Who wants to steal our courage, our faith. Who wants to leave us discouraged. We're actually in a real war. And if you look at the area we live in, we can see the fingerprints of this enemy everywhere. You can see it in fear. Fear of the future. Fear of one another. Fear of difference. You can see it in the anger that just spills out when people have one or two drinks and this fury comes out. You can see it in the hatred. You can see it in racism. You can see it in hostility. You can see it in sickness. You can see it in despair. You can see it in hopelessness. You can see it in apathy, poverty and passivity. These are all the fingerprints of the fact that we're in a love story in a very real war. So some of our responses then can be is, well, we're going to run then into a bunker. Where's the bunker? We're all going to huddle in the bunker, so we stay safe from this enemy that you're telling me hates me. So you're telling me we're in a love story, we're loved by the good father, and there's an enemy who hates us, then I know what, we'll all shelter and we'll all hide from the big bad world. We'll just keep away from it. Apart from that's not who we are. We're a Joshua generation who are to bring the kingdom and the rule of God into this world. 
So that where we see his fingerprints of hostility and anxiety and, and, and disease and hopelessness, we are an invading force to bring a kingdom into that, to change it wherever we go. That's who we are. That's our assignment. So the safest place for you, believer, is on the front line of this assignment. So sometimes we didn't realise that when we came to Jesus. We, 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 we realise our sins get forgiven, we get a new start, a fresh start, a new nature. We're part of a new community. You need to be told and we need to be reminded that actually we, we, we joined an army. Where we're, where we're sons and daughters, but we're also soldiers in a very, very real, wonderful war. But the great news about this war is it starts from the foundation of the great victory. That's why Colossians talks about that Jesus, as it were, as he goes ascends into glory, he he makes a spectacle of all of his enemies triumphing over them through his life, his death, his resurrection. We're the mop-up squad. So the great victory... The great victory was Jesus' death at the cross. That's where he, he obliterated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death, he got the keys of the kingdom so that we could rule again, he got back for us what Adam had given away in the garden, he raises us up to the dignity of being sons and daughters on a mission. To apply the finished work of Jesus and his victory wherever we go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's who we are. We're the, we're the D-Day people. Remember D-Day? They made it into, into, into Normandy. The boats landed. They had a beachhead. And then they advanced to free Europe. The Allies moved. Jesus is our great D-Day. <coughs> Jesus is the one who secured the beaches of Normandy, as it were. And now we go in on the basis of his victory. We've got answers to hopelessness. We've got answers to hostility. We've got answers to racism. We've got answers to every single type of despair there is. There's answers to disease. There's answers to passivity and poverty in Jesus. So we're on a front line of an assignment. There are captives who need releasing and there are prisoners who need to be set free. And so Jesus is, in a sense, is waking us up from a peacetime mentality. We're in a war. We're going to have a wartime mentality. So nothing significant ever happens apart from courage. Someone says if you are flying over the right target... Uh, when you are flying over the right target, you know you're flying over the right target when you are being shot at. (laughs) And it's in the context of war that God says, surely I'm with you and I'll never leave you. God never calls us to do anything apart from him. So now I want to get into the nitty gritty of what I talked about at the beginning of my own personal story and freedom and experiencing freedom and how we engage with prophetic promises to bring those to the world. Because it's, it's, it's easy to hear we are a mop-up crew, we're applying the finished work of Christ, we're going we're gonna to see his fingerprints erased in every area of society, 
But, but the question is how? How do we co-labor with that kind of promise? What's your part? What's my part? What do I do? Am I just waiting for a visitation of God? Then you turn up and then we just run and say, wow, it's happening. Or is there something that we need to do? That we, we transform the world through exporting the freedom that we personally enjoy. That we transform everywhere we go through exporting the freedom that we enjoy. So in the book of Joshua, they're, they're about to cross the Jordan and they're going to go into a physical land. And they're going to tear down Jericho and, and they're going to take the land tribe by tribe. And they're going to push out all God's enemies out of the land and then they're going to inherit it, and they're going to grow, and they're going to plant, and they're going to harvest. So it's a physical territory. When we come into the, the, the new covenant, this walk with Jesus, we are not about um, invading a physical territory. The application of Joshua for the believer today is not about attacking everything out there, it's not about our spiritual guns facing at people. Our spiritual guns are to face inwards at the strongholds, the fortresses that lie within us. I'm going to explain that. So if in Joshua they, they face a Jericho that's a physical Jericho, they're going to pull that down so they can move forward and inherit that in Christ, the spiritual guns don't face outwards at people, shouting at people, blaming people, blaming circumstances. <coughs> it turns around and faces in on the strongholds that are in our lives, first of all. So strongholds are fortresses made of blocks of thoughts, thoughts that oppose God. So I'm going to read this to you because this is important. This is in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. For the weapons of our warfare, so the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. In other words, the weapons of our warfare are going to be spiritual weapons. In a sense, the weapons of warfare for Joshua were physical weapons of physical invasion of land. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these strongholds? And Paul goes on to say, we destroy arguments and every, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Strongholds are those things within us that don't agree with what God says. <clears throat> Francis Frangipane says that any area of our life that doesn't glisten with hope is a stronghold, a fortress of the enemy. Any area where we look at and we're not full of anticipation and confident expectation of God's goodness in that area is actually under a stronghold. Whether it might be we're looking at our marriage, or our children, or our work, or our community. 
So if we're so for example, if we're looking at our community where we live and we're not full of genuine confident expectation of glistening hope that God's goodness can do something about poverty, can do something about racism, can do something about hatred. If we're not glistening with hope, then it means we've got a stronghold, a bunch of thoughts that says society, people are bigger than God. And that stronghold needs to be pulled down. That's where the first war is. Anything that doesn't line up with God. One translation says speculations. Speculations that don't line up with God. For example, um, somebody's late home from work. Half an hour late home from work. A stronghold that speculates would say, oh no, they've, they've got into an accident. Or, or your child is 20 minutes late home from work. Oh no, they've been kidnapped. It's a speculation, it's an imagination of the worst possible scenario. What if you had a stronghold of hope that... that for they're late from work because they've been called into the office because they've been doing such a good job the boss wants to give them a pay rise. Do we go there or does the stronghold always take us to hopelessness and negativity and fear? Can you see that? They're strongholds. They're blocks of reasoning that need to be torn down so that we reason with a mindset of hope. One scientist said... That 80% of the things we worry about never ever happen. And another person said, have you ever really ever found that all your foreboding anxiety about the future ever helped you when something terrible happens? Did it ever prepare you? Did all those hours of anticipating the worst ever help you when something awful and tragic happened. So, in other words, choose joy, choose hope, <coughs> choose rejoicing, choose thanksgiving, choose gratitude, because fear-based foreboding does not protect you and does not equip you and does not enable you to press through. See, what the enemy does around the believer, he wants to do in you. What he's doing around in terms of tormenting people, harassing people's minds, he wants to do in you. So the story that I told you at the beginning, some of that was before I was a believer... Most of that was as a believer. That torment, that anxiety. What he does around us, he wants to produce in you. He wants to produce fear, worry, anxiety, unforgiveness and bitterness. He wants to cause the believer to live with regret and shame and guilt. So let's finish by looking at the weapons that we fight with. Paul said in those verses in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons that we fight with have divine power for the demolishing of strongholds. Mm -hmm. So, this is the great good news. There is no 
disposition, mindset, outlook, stronghold that can resist the divine powers of the weapons that we have in Christ. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And why I tell you my testimony is because I have experienced there is no measure of fear, anxiety or torment that can resist the divine weapons that God equips the believer with. It doesn't exist. And Joshua gives us an insight into how these instructions or how these weapons work. So Joshua is going into a land that's with real terrifying enemies and God says to him, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do according to all that's written in it for then you will... uh, then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Connect to hope right now that that, that, that whatever you are wrestling with, whether it's in your mind or it's in the promise that God's given you, connect to hope right now that it cannot stand these weapons that have divine power. Because hope is the first stage of transformation. When I was locked into the darkest times with those that torment, I, I didn't know if there was ever a way out. And in all honesty, people I spoke to didn't really understand what I was really talking about and why I was even worrying about those things. That they would just say, pull yourself together. Of course you didn't cause an old lady to trip on a slap and break her hip. But how many of you know that what goes on in your mind can have a reality to it, even if it's got no reality? You can live in virtual reality. And I think what the enemy wants to do is cause believers to live in virtual reality that has emotion attached to it, that shapes how you view the future and feels very, very real, but it's a virtual reality. It's like at the fairground, those rides you can sit in and you can be a red arrow for a moment. It's virtual reality. You're not really a pilot. You're just in a motion-controlled box. You feel like you're a pilot, but you're not. And the enemy doesn't want you to know that actually there are weapons that you can have that will stop the virtual reality, open the door, and there's a whole vista of freedom. He doesn't want you to know that because he wants you to believe the lie that the stronghold projects that this is reality and this is all there is. So God says to Joshua, this book, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, that's all he had at that point was the law. We've now got the whole whole thing. I mean, we've got much, much more. We've got the whole thing that, like Rebecca was talking about, all the details. We've got how Jesus brings the whole thing together. But he's saying to Joshua, if you want to be strong, if you want to be courageous, if you want to inherit, if you want to put your soul down, if you're going to lead these people anywhere, you must continuously, day and night, be talking to yourself about the truth and the perspective and the promises of God. He says you've got to meditate on it. Not empty your mind in some kind of Eastern philosophy, but be so full of it that you can reason no other way. 
You cannot afford to look at anything, any circumstance, any situation, any other way than this. I am with you and I'm giving you this land. You can't accommodate another thought. Meditate is to mutter. How many of you are good at worrying? Worrying is thinking about something from every single angle and then absolutely freaking out about it. And it's all happened in your imagination at that moment. Meditating on God's word is muttering, it's thinking about it, it's imagining it. Don't let it depart from your lips. Keep speaking about it. God has promised. If you want SCA team, you can have it. If you, we're going to percolate out the presence of God. We're going we're gonna to take him, his goodness out everywhere we go. Healing's going to break out of here. You can do it. Christ is in you. you your new creation, there's a new reality within you. You've got the power of the resurrection within you. You have authority. You're a son. You're a daughter. You keep meditating upon it. So you reason no other way. You think about it no other way. You store up what God thinks, and you become completely saturated by God's conclusions. See, grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. You cannot earn your salvation through any of this. It's all a gift. It's all through Christ. It's all given to you based on what he has done. But grace is not opposed to discipline. (coughs) And grace is not opposed to choices. 1 Timothy 1.18 talks about recalling prophecy. This is how you battle well. You remind yourself of what God has said. You remind yourself again and again and again. This is how he sees me. This is the assessment of heaven. I'm not just having a go here. God is with me. God has promised this. God wants to do this in and through me. This is how we become trees that are planted by streams of water that Psalm 1 talks about. This is how we abide. God says it's a day and night thing. It's a day and night thing. So you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. Can you see that you're not pressing in to somehow think, I've got to try hard because then I might get free. The revelation in Christ is you are free Now think about this day and night, mutter it, consider it, fill your mind with it so that you can explore the vast freedom that is already yours in Christ. The enemy's lie is, you're in this virtual reality, you're bound and shackled, he doesn't want you to know the cage is open and that your shackles are off. He just wants you to believe the lie. There's a... True story that if you place on an elephant, when it's a baby, a a very thin chain that would be easily broken by an adult, when it's an adult, it still believes that this really flimsy chain still has the power to hold it back. That's how you apparently can keep a a two-ton animal shackled by a tiny chain. Because when it was a little calf, it pulled against the chain and had resistance. But now it's this huge animal and the same small chain can keep it bound. Because it believes from its experience that that chain has the power to stop it moving forward. Actually, it's able just to kick its leg and move completely free. That's how strongholds work. They are illusions, they are lies and they are virtual reality. 
See, we, we, we need to follow up in process. There has to be this ongoing response. It can't be just the first response. There has to be this day and night response. That when you read something in the Bible and it comes alive, then you, you want to camp there and drill into that so that it becomes real in your experience. There's this ongoing response to God. Sometimes we, we think this, we wish that God did magic. <laughs> that we wish that a new thought would just suddenly show up. That was my story. I just wish that God would do magic. That he would just meet me and he would give me a new set of thinking and that a new thought would just show up and I would think, oh. God met me at least six times in powerful encounters on each of the times I had to follow up with process Mm -hmm. that he never did magic he met me in in incredible power incredible freedom but I had to follow up every single encounter in process and work it out in reality suddenly there was a breakthrough in power I had now the opportunity to engage with that freedom. See, sometimes we, we want this new way of thinking and this freedom, but we cling to old ways of thinking because we're terrified of what it would mean to, to move out in freedom. Because connected to a stronghold is a set of emotions. And when we take that divine power to demolish it and take it captive, sometimes the stronghold doesn't want to go easily. It screams out because that's been our security and our protection. So God can come to me in a powerful moment and say, I'm bringing you a revelation. I'm a good, good father. You don't need to self-protect. You don't need to check. You don't need to look after yourself. I'm going to do that. But when you've self-protected and looked after yourself and, and guarded yourself for two and a bit decades, you think, am I going to be safe to let this go? And there feels as though there's resistance. And there is resistance. Because all your mind has been spinning in a certain way for such a long time, maybe, on a fault. Maybe you've hosted a particular for for years. You've entertained it for years. And there are some strongholds that just don't want to go easily. You remember those gyroscopes? Do you spin them? And then you, you can put your hand on them, but it, it kind of resists because it's all the speed is going in one direction. It takes time to put your hand on the gyroscope to slow it down so it spins in a new direction. Somebody said that it takes between 30 to 90 days to, to develop a brand new habit and a brand new thought. There is resistance. It does feel risky. This stronghold wants to resist sometimes being taken captive. I'm going to land here with these words that God says to Joshua. You will make your way prosperous and successful.
Sometimes you can hear a thing like this morning, you can say, but this isn't a really convenient time for me to have another thought. Because I've got worries, I've got anxieties, I've got uncertainty. So if, when all my anxiety and all my uncertainty is sorted, then I will develop a mindset of trust and peace and surrender. But right now it's not convenient. God spoke to Joshua in one of the most emotionally intense times possible. Moses is dead. You're going to lead these people. Be, be strong. Be courageous. That God grabs him by the collar and says, I am not going to indulge in your self-pity. I'm not going to indulge in the fact that right now you're hurting. You are leading these people. You, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. You be strong. You be courageous. You meditate on my words. You mutter them. It's, it's now Joshua. Mm. It's now Joshua. Yeah. Sometimes we can say, but I I can't do this because you don't know my story. You don't know my history. You don't know how many times I've been let down, rejected and hurt. I can't trust. God won't come and indulge it. He won't say, okay, well, that's fine then because you've been through so much pain. I understand that. He'll say to you, no, be strong, be courageous. I'm calling you to trust. I'm calling you to yield. I'm calling you to surrender. He says it to Joshua. Moses is dead. You lead these people. Sometimes we can mix up compassion with sympathy. Sympathy is where we say, oh, oh, there, there. I'm really sorry for you. That's awful, isn't it? No worries. Just carry on in the stronghold. Just live in your virtual reality. Don't worry. Maybe one day God will show up. Think when you know you're in a war, you say, no, it's today. Amen. I'm not living in a virtual reality anymore. It's today. See, we cannot control life. We cannot control the things that happen to us. But we always have the power to choose the conclusions that we come to. That's the truth for all of us. None of us are helpless victims. We might feel like, oh, I'm a victim of everything out there and everything out there is, is, is ruining my life and ruining my perspective and ruining my hope. If everybody would just line up and do what I need them to do, I'd feel so much better inside. God doesn't come to Joshua and say, oh, poor Joshua, of course you're weak and vulnerable because Moses is dead. I don't expect too much of you. Have, do your best. Do your best. <clears throat> he says, no. Grabs him by the cons, as it were, and says, I'm not going to indulge this. Be bold. Be courageous. Mm-hmm. And I love the way God would come to me and say, Jamie, at the root of all this is this. You refuse to trust, you refuse to yield, and you refuse to surrender. Jamie, you think you're a better God than I am. You think your routines and everything is protecting you. Well, you're wrong. I want to do that for you. Will you let me? I'm not going to do magic on you. Will you let me? Most of the time, what we feel, our emotions follow what we believe. 
sometimes it can be chemical, it can be a diagnosable issue that the doctor says, and there's no shame in that, there's no shame in someone telling you you've got a kidney issue, there's no shame in a doctor saying there's an issue in your brain and there's an issue with depression and there's an issue where your chemicals are out of alignment, I'm going to help you, there's nothing wrong with that, there's no shame in that. But there's whole hosts of mindsets that are just rooted in really, really poor conclusions and really bad beliefs. There's a lot of the stuff we suffer with that's stinky thinking. There's a lot of Christians who are weak and powerless because they're living in a virtual reality that is controlled by strongholds. You can make your way prosperous and successful by prosperity. I'm not just talking financially, I'm talking about that it prospers in your soul. <laughs> That's what John talks about. Soul prosperity is not just about financial, it's about an inner world that's shalom, that's liberated from irritation, frustration, anger, that's full of joy, hope, peace, thanksgiving, gratitude, kindness and love. You can cooperate with God and see that established. There are realms of freedom and advancement we will only ever experience in the moment where we say, I choose another form. I choose. I choose. Things can influence me, but I get to choose. I can make my way prosperous. I can make my way successful. I, I, I can choose frustration, irritation and anger. I can choose love, peace and joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. I'm that powerful. I'm not a victim. I can choose in the new birth, through the new birth in Christ, to have a different environment, a different culture within that affects the world around me. I get to choose that. I also get to choose if I want to live in a virtual reality of strongholds and fear. I get to choose that. I choose. I choose. I'm just going to invite us to stand. I want to